The Chinese government is accused of aggressively targeting Western democracies with disinformation and hostage diplomacy. From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple, and on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll separate fact from fiction and hear from accused spies, whistleblowers, and others caught in the political crossfire. As the pandemic rages across the world and incidents of anti-Asian racism rise, listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. A listener's note: This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature. Listener discretion is advised. Over the years, I've covered dozens and dozens of homicide cases. The impact of a murder, the pain and trauma the family and loved ones of a victim experience, never goes away. But the most difficult cases to cover involve children. How someone can harm a child, let alone kill them, is beyond my comprehension. Talia, honey, if you're watching this, love you. Stay strong, honey. <laughs> Please, if you have to leave, please let her come home to her family. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat, part two of our special look at the murder of a young Calgary mother and her five-year-old daughter. If you're just joining me for the first time now, stop, go back, and listen to the last episode. This is who killed Sarah and Talia. July 10th, 2016 was a big day for Talia Marsman. She bumped her tooth and it started bleeding. Eventually, she managed to wiggle it loose and it came out. Talia's mom, Sarah Bailey, knew the best way to cheer her little girl up was ice cream. So off they went to Dairy Queen. It was the next morning, July 11th, 2016, when Sarah's family and friends started to worry. She didn't show up for work, and Talia didn't show up at daycare. Her family searched her home, but couldn't find her. Police were called, but their initial search also came up empty. It was several hours later, when police did a second search of the home, that Sarah Bailey was found, murdered. An Alberta-wide Amber Alert was activated for her missing daughter. Talia's aunt and uncle, Mary Lynn and Scott Hamilton, made a plea for her safe return. To those who've taken Talia Lee Marsman, Sarah's daughter, please return her. Drop her off at an RCMP station, Calgary Police Service Station, or grocery store, gas station, wherever you want. Contact the family. We'll come and pick her up. There will be no questions asked. We love her. We miss her. And we want her back. I remember hundreds of messages were posted on my Nancy Hickst Crime Beat Facebook page. People wanted to show their support. It was three days after her disappearance, police revealed the heartbreaking news Talia had been found. Her tiny body was left in some bushes outside the Calgary city limits. The Amber Alert was over. That same night, Police announced the killer had been caught. But the man accused of this incomprehensible crime wasn't even on the family's radar. His name? Edward Downey. 
46-year-old Edward Downey was taken to the arrest processing late tonight. He is now charged with the first-degree murder of both five-year-old Talia Marsman and her mother, Sarah Bailey. He has an extensive history with police. Global News has confirmed he has prior convictions for trafficking cocaine and a prostitution-related case. He will be held in custody. Police say they can't speak to motive yet, but he is known to his victims. We believe that uh, Mr. Downey is known to both or all three, Sarah, Talia, uh, and the father, Colin. We, that, we believe that to be the case. Police believe Talia was likely killed before the Amber Alert was even issued early Tuesday morning. Again, this is just heartbreak. I can't even begin to tell you the mood here at Calgary Police Headquarters, but this has affected all of us. And, you know, everyone all across the country has hoped for a positive result. And so this is just devastating news that little Talia was found dead. We got our first glimpse of Edward Downey that night hours after Talia's body was found. He had his arms behind his back, handcuffed, wearing a blue jumpsuit with the hood pulled up. He kept his head down as officers guided him to the Calgary Police Arrest Processing Unit. When they told you Edward Downey has been charged, what did that name mean to you? Nothing. Meant absolutely nothing to me. Had no idea who he was. To use the term piece of shit, yeah, that probably went through my mind a couple of times in a different couple of ways. Um, No, I just, I thought, how evil can you be? How evil can you be in the the way you you harm a defenseless woman? And then you, you know, you literally murder a five-year-old little girl, a five-year-old child. A few days after the arrest, the Hamiltons invited me into their home to tell me about Sarah and Talia. They will be sadly missed and will leave a huge hole in our hearts. That's Sarah's mother, Janet Fredette. Meeting a family under these circumstances is heartbreaking. It was one of the darkest days in this family's life, and they were trusting me to honor their loved one's memories. I guess I want the world to know that Sarah was a very special girl. And Talia was the light of her life. And it's it's nice that they've taken this journey with us. We don't like the outcome of the journey. Talia's uncle Mikey struggled to think about the milestones he would never get to Mark. I never got to take her out actual fishing. Um, That's something that was taken away. Um, They're always being a hurt. They're gone. But we still have their memories. And hopefully The pain will ease in time, but I know it's never going to go away. Several days after Talia's body was found, a private viewing was held. The family was understandably completely grief-stricken. Talia didn't look like Talia. It was hard. Mary Lynn was a strong one. She, uh, we'd all written cards. Sarah and T and Marilyn had to put them in the casket and speak to them both. Uh, I wasn't capable. Alex certainly wasn't. So that, that was probably one of the hardest days for sure. The following day, July 21st, a celebration of life was held. Hundreds of people filled the church. The family allowed media inside. It's one of the largest funerals I've ever been to. There was complete silence as one of Talia's selfie videos played on several large screens. Um, I'm making a big, wait, how do you do this? You're recording right now. Oh, this is me, Talia. It was as if Talia was present. There wasn't a dry eye in the room as her cheery little voice spoke directly 
to those mourning her death. This is me, Talia, and I know how to dance. And my mom is so crazy. <laughs> one by one, tributes were read. We are, of course, overcome with grief by the unnecessary loss of two beautiful members of our family. Despite our grief, we are also overwhelmed by the strength that this community has given us. But in the midst of the crushing sadness, there was also a need to remember the happy times. I guess the emphasis of just in my little tribute here is about a celebration of two lives. They've left us way too early. And so, quite frankly, I'm tired of mourning. I want an opportunity to celebrate. And this is it. Scott Hamilton and his son Justin did something no one expected. Are you ready? They reached into their pockets, pulled out their sunglasses, and danced to one of Sarah's favorite songs. Brad, some music, please. <laughs> Hundreds of people stood up and clapped along and danced in their seats. A fitting tribute to a mother and daughter who loved to dance. The days and weeks that followed were a blur for the family. The impact of the murders of Sarah and Talia hit them hard. You know, I've lost my purpose. I think that's the biggest thing, my purpose. Our kids were grown up. They were grown up and they were gone and living their lives. They didn't need us as much anymore. And here we had this precious little being in our lives who was so important and who was so fun to be around. Sarah was a single mom. So it became my purpose to help Sarah raise Talia. They had so many questions, but in order to protect the court process and the pursuit of justice, police couldn't provide the family with a lot of answers. But we were slowly getting a better picture of who the accused double murderer was. Edward Downey's criminal history dates back to 1990, when he was 20 years old. He has convictions for drug trafficking, weapons, and prostitution-related charges, and has ties to organized crime. According to documents obtained by Global News, the Parole Board of Canada granted him release from prison in May 2010, six years before Sarah and Talia were killed. The board noted he had relied on criminal means to support himself, specifically prostitution and drug trafficking, rather than find and keep legitimate employment. After weighing all evidence, Downey was granted full parole noting he could present a moderate risk of violence to a partner and low risk of violence towards others. Sources said he was affiliated to a high-profile Canadian gang that originates out of Nova Scotia, called North Preston's Finest. You can find answers to just about anything online, but what about those mysteries that can't seem to be solved? Spooky secrets which have stumped even the cleverest of clickers. Well, set the mouse aside because the myths have met their match in the Spotify original. Internet Urban Legends. Every Tuesday, evidence expert Louis Lane and skeptic Eleanor Barnes investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering conspiracy theories and combing through clues to separate hoax from haunt. Together, they tackle the terrors of Twitter, TikTok horror stories, paranormal YouTube videos, and every unsettling internet tale in between. Each episode is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. Can the gruesome twosome solve these mysteries? Or will they remain internet urban legends? 
wade through the weirdest stories on the web, and follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free only on Spotify. For Sarah and Talia's family, the wheels of justice moved slowly. Edward Downey made his first court appearance six days after he was charged with the double murder. His defense lawyer, Gavin Walsh, spoke to the media following court. At this point, what we're hoping for is for a trial in a courtroom, not a trial uh, before the media or or in the public. By then, the accused killer's face was well known to the public, and Walsh said Downey was being portrayed unfairly. Obviously, everybody has seen the news. We've seen a picture of uh, the accused in a jumpsuit walking towards the police station, uh, and we are concerned. In August of 2018, two years after the double murder, there was a shocking development in the case. Edward Downey was sent to hospital. Sources told Global News Downey had attempted to hang himself, but was expected to survive. Downey remained in hospital for several days before being taken back to the remand center, where sources said he was kept on suicide watch. A few months later, the trial began, and Sarah and Talia's family finally heard details of the case. On November 26, 2018, Edward Downey stood trial in front of a jury charged with two counts of first-degree murder. It was an emotional three and a half weeks. Every single day, there was crying, people completely broken over what they were hearing. Crown Prosecutor Carla McPhail told jurors Downey was known to both Sarah and Talia through a woman known as A.B., Sarah's best friend. A.B.'s identity is protected by a court-imposed publication ban. A.B. was Sarah's best friend. Downey was A.B.'s boyfriend. This was the first time an alleged motive was revealed in the case. A.B.'s relationship with Downey was falling apart, and the Crown alleged Downey blamed Sarah for making his girlfriend square or unwilling to work as a prostitute. The prosecution's theory was Sarah was killed because Downey had pure hatred towards her. He kidnapped and killed Talia because she was a witness to her mother's death. A.B. testified from behind a screen, so she didn't have to face Downey. Jurors and people sitting in the gallery could see her, but the accused could not. A.B. had lived with Downey for about two years. She said they first met when she was about 13 years old. He was 29, more than double her age at the time. And years before they became intimate, he told her they would eventually be together. A.B. said the entire time they dated, Downey never had a job. She worked at a daycare the same daycare Talia went to. That's where she met Sarah. They became fast friends, and A.B. said Sarah and Talia were like family. They talked and texted daily, and Sarah would go to family dinners. A.B. also had a son, who became good friends with Talia. She testified Downey had on at least one occasion been to Sarah's basement suite, and said Talia would have been able to recognize him. A.B. told court she paid the mortgage and bills, and she was the one making payments on the Dodge Charger that Downey drove every day. She said near the end of their relationship, money was tight, and Downey asked A.B. to escort or prostitute herself out. The couple purchased condoms, massage oils, and put an ad in the back pages. They planned a trip a few hours north of Calgary to Edmonton, where she would give it a try. A.B. testified she met up with one man. She got paid, but ended up leaving. She said she just couldn't do it. 
AB testified Downey pimped out another girl and said that's how he made his money. It was in June of 2016, a month before Sarah and Talia were killed, that AB said her relationship with Downey took a turn for the worse. AB said Downey hit her in the face in front of Sarah, resulting in a black eye. According to A.B., Sarah was afraid for her. That night appears to have been the triggering event for the end of A.B.'s relationship with Downey, something he held animosity towards Sarah for. A.B. said just days before Sarah was killed, Downey made it clear he didn't like her. She is bad, one text said. He went on to call her a disrespectful pot, or piece of trash. It was July 10th, 2016, the day before Sarah was found dead in her house, that things reached a breaking point in A.B. and Downey's relationship. A.B. texted Downey, It's time to pack your bags. I'm ending this relationship. But when she got home, he was still there. The following day seemed like any other. A.B. hopped into her Dodge Charger with Downey, who dropped her off at the daycare for work, then drove away. She expected to see Talia that day, but she didn't show up. A.B. said she received some strange messages from Sarah, one-word texts. That struck her as odd. It wasn't at all like Sarah to send such short messages. She tried to call Sarah, but there was no answer. You're scaring me. Answer my call, A.B. texted Sarah. I'll call you in 15, was the response A.B. received. But that call didn't come. All of A.B.'s calls to Sarah went unanswered. What she didn't realize was the killer was the one texting her, pretending to be Sarah. Several hours later, after she finished work at 5 o'clock, Downey picked A.B. up from the daycare. They drove near Sarah's street and saw police were there. A.B. testified Downey drove to a nearby park because he didn't want her son to see the large police presence. Downey and A.B.'s son got out. A.B. went to Sarah's by herself. There was a crowd gathered in front of the home. She went inside the basement suite where she saw Sarah's uncle Scott and Aunt Mary Lynn. A.B. said she only stayed at Sarah's a little while then drove back to the park to pick up her son and Downey. She said she was anxious about Sarah being missing. As the trial continued, graphic, shocking details of what happened to Sarah began to emerge, devastating her already broken family and friends. We came to know that reality was far worse than what our imaginations were telling us because we couldn't even comprehend how bad it was. Sarah didn't die an easy death. It was, it was bad. I surmised after seeing her that she was probably strangled. I never imagined that she was beaten as bad as she was. When the first responding officer found Sarah, she had been stuffed into a laundry basket and hidden into Leah's closet. Her neck, face, and body were badly bruised. A pathologist found severe trauma was inflicted to most of Sarah's body, including her stomach and back. Duct tape was wrapped around her face and neck several times. Evidence showed at one point during the attack, she was able to free the tape from over her nose causing her attacker to bind her wrists with more duct tape. That duct tape would become key evidence in this case. I'll explain more about that later. It wasn't the severe beating that killed Sarah. 
she was strangled so hard a bone in the front of her neck was fractured. The medical examiner said it was possible Sarah was still alive, just unconscious, when she was folded in half and put into the laundry bag. He said her breathing would have been compromised in that position. Sarah died of asphyxiation from neck compressions and suffocation. A patrol unit located Sarah's missing car just a couple blocks from her basement suite. An elderly couple who lived on the street where Sarah's car was found testified in the trial. There was sobbing in the courtroom as the couple explained what they witnessed on July 11, 2016. They were having lunch and watched out their window. Sherry Jessen said she saw a man take a little girl from one car to a second car that was parked across the street. Her husband, Douglas, recalled seeing the man carrying a red suitcase, and the little girl was wearing red rubber boots with white polka dots. Douglas told jurors one thing really struck him as he watched the man open the back door of the second car and put the little girl inside. The little girl had been crying. The couple watched as the car drove away. That was the last time Talia was seen alive. Officers pulled CCTV surveillance video from the area to see if Sarah's vehicle or that second car were captured on camera. Police discovered two vehicles that matched descriptions given by the Jessens, a white Ford Fusion, Sarah's missing car, and a gray Dodge Charger. That's what AB drove. The same car Downey used regularly and was driving the day Sarah was killed while AB was at work. Police went through video from various sources, including city transit buses and taxi cabs. Through that, they came up with a timeline that was presented to the jury during the trial. The first image of Sarah's car was at 8.11 a.m. on July 11th, the day of the murder. It was parked in front of her home. The gray Dodge Charger was also seen around the corner from Sarah's house about a half hour later. Two hours later, Sarah's car was gone. Video evidence showed that by noon, the Dodge Charger had also moved. It turned up right across from the Jessens. Police said it was minutes later, Sarah's car showed up on that same cul-de-sac. The Charger was seen leaving the area at about 1.30 that afternoon. Remember back in the last episode when I said police released a photo of a vehicle captured on surveillance video? The one they believed was involved in Talia's disappearance? Evidence showed Downey kidnapped Talia put her in her mother's car, then transferred her into AB's charger and drove off. On July 13, 2016, a fingerprints expert went to the autopsy of Sarah Bailey. Sergeant Jody Arns examined the duct tape that bound Sarah. Talia was still missing, so she had to work fast. The tape would prove to be key evidence in the case. Sergeant Arns located three partial prints from the sticky side of the tape that was wrapped around Sarah's lower jaw and head. She told jurors two of the partial fingerprints on the tape were a match to Edward Downey. Both prints were from Downey's left forefinger, left on the tape where it was torn. Evidence was mounting against Edward Downey as the killer. 
Meanwhile, on July 12, 2016, as the frantic search for Talia continued on, a man who was on a trip across Western Canada with his family stopped to visit some friends in Calgary. That night, he took his kids to a park where he came across a Samsung smartphone lying under a tree. The man picked it up. He took a photo of himself holding the phone and sent it to his friends before taking it to his friend's house. That friend testified she charged the phone. She wanted to figure out who it belonged to. When it finally turned on, the woman said she recognized a name that showed up on the screen. That name was Talia. The woman had seen that name on the news. Talia was missing. The prosecution alleged Downey had discarded Sarah's cell phone at that park, the same park where A.B. had dropped Downey and her son off a day earlier, before going over to Sarah's house. The woman testified the screen showed 15 missed calls from A.B. The next morning, she turned the phone over to police. I'm going to stop here and tell you about another key aspect of this investigation. A lot of times on Crime Beat, I tell you about the tireless work of homicide detectives. What you don't always hear about are the people working alongside those investigators. This is definitely a teamwork environment. We can't do our job without a good investigator. And hopefully a good investigator really leans on their analyst to do the things that they can't do. That's Trish Pace. She's a crime analyst with the Calgary Police Service with more than two decades of experience. Homicide detectives describe her as hardworking, methodical, and thorough. I take large pieces of data and I try to boil them down into something that makes sense in terms of the investigation and to draw pictures and diagrams and pull out little bits of information that can help them move the file forward. That can include looking at a suspect's background or going through banking records or cell phone pings. You'll recall from episode eight of Crime Beat, that technology was new to homicide investigators back in 2012 when Ryan Lane disappeared. But by 2016, Pace was an expert on how cell phone pings work. So say you're driving down a road and you're receiving and sending text messages or you've got phone calls coming in, you're using a cell tower every time one of those communications happens. So what'll happen is as you're moving, say, northbound, the tower that you're using will move northbound as well. And the coverage areas will generally overlap a road whether it's on one side or the other, or just north of the road, or just south, but you'll see the coverage areas kind of move in a linear direction as you drive along. Honestly, it's a very technical science and requires someone who really paid attention in some advanced math classes to make it all make sense. If you're sitting in a stationary area, what you'll see is if you have a bunch of communications coming in, cell phone, like uh, SMS messages or phone calls, you've got a series that come in. If they're coming in in fairly quick succession and you're seeing, say, five or six towers being used and they're not in a linear, like one's north, then one's south, and then one's east, and then back north, and then over to the west. So it's kind of like ping-ponging, not in a linear progression. They're kind of like back and forth between each other. And there's not a lot of time between the calls. That tells me that you're sitting in an area that's covered by all those cell towers and it's kind of hitting on them depending on, you know, are you behind a tree? Are you behind a concrete barrier? Are you behind a hill? In this case, Pace was trying to find information that could help police find Talia Marsman. Pace testified she used cell communications to and from a phone belonging to Edward Downey. Pace took jurors through a detailed breakdown of the cell phone tower pings made by Downey's BlackBerry on July 11, 2016. She showed 
every communication to and from the accused killer's phone on that specific day, including text messages, BlackBerry Messenger or BBM, and phone calls. Pace put all the pings into chronological order to create a map. You can see that map in the online story that goes along with this episode. We'll put the link in the show notes. Court heard that at some points on the day of the murders, Downey's phone had so many communications just seconds apart that the communications almost ping-ponged off of different towers. In the hours leading up to Sarah's death and for several days after, Court heard Downey was texting a woman named Diana. The messages were flirtatious. Downey called Diana sweets. On the day of the murders, just after four in the afternoon, the text conversation heated up. Downey told Diana he was turned on. He texted that his thing ain't working and he was testing what's out there. Downey told Diana he felt she could be his one. There were about 90 texts sent between Downey and Diana in just a two-hour period that afternoon. Each of those texts helped Pace narrow down her map. She provided investigators with a smaller search area. She created a map with a circle, and based on Downey's cell activity, she felt Talia would be found somewhere in that specific area. Pace's predictions were correct. It was on the edge of the mapped area Pace had given officers Talia's body was found. The little girl had been dumped near a farmer's field where there was a break in some bushes. I need to stop here and warn you. This next part of the story is tough to hear. Police used forensic evidence to determine how long Talia's body had been there. A forensic entomologist is an expert who studies bugs associated with human remains. These experts examine the eggs and insects found on a body to help police create a timeline of events. A lot of Sarah and Talia's loved ones left the courtroom while this expert testified. In Talia's case, experts looked at the type of bugs, the stage of development, and also factored in the weather conditions. It's a fascinating science, but it was really difficult to hear this kind of evidence associated with Talia. The expert found Talia was likely killed on or before July 12, 2016. Her body was found on July 14th. He threw her. He threw her in the in that thicket of woods, of which Mary Lynn and I've been there. Uh, I've been there a few times. Um. He, yeah, he disposed of her body like someone was dumping trash on the side of a highway. It was despicable. And I just realized that this man was just evil. Um, I left the courtroom. I couldn't listen to uh, the autopsy results for a tea. It was too hard. Members of the jury were shown graphic photos of Talia. The medical examiner said there were scratches on her forehead and the back of her neck that likely happened before she was killed. The pathologist determined Talia died from asphyxiation, likely caused by smothering and strangulation, and agreed with the entomologist that she died on or before July 12th. Forensic evidence, CCTV and cell phone evidence, narrowed down that timeline even further. It showed Talia was killed sometime between 1.30 and 3.47 p.m. 
July 11th, before Downey's cell phone was tracked moving east of the city. It also put Downey in the area where Talia's body was dumped that same afternoon at about 4.30. It was in the third week of the double murder trial when Edward Downey testified in his own defense. He said in the summer of 2016, he was earning money by selling cocaine. Downey testified on July 11, 2016, the day Sarah was murdered, he met up with an old drug dealing buddy named Terrence, along with one of Terrence's friends. He said the three of them went to Sarah's house to get the drugs. Downey didn't explain why Sarah's house was chosen to do the deal, but went on to tell court Sarah put Talia in her room. He said Terrence took him into another room and pulled out a knapsack filled with cocaine, four kilos of cocaine, according to Downey. He said at one point, Terrence and Sarah went into a bedroom and he could hear them fighting. He said, while Terrence and Sarah were arguing, Terrence yelled out for tape. So Downey ripped off a piece and passed it to him and later gave him the whole roll. That's how Downey explained his fingerprints got on the duct tape. Downey's lawyer asked him what was going through his mind at the time. He said, nothing. I just thought he wanted tape. Downey denied killing both Sarah and Talia. He told jurors he was at Sarah's basement suite for an hour or two. Downey testified that he left to grab some money and borrowed Terrence's Mercedes to drive to his girlfriend's place to have a snack, send some emails, and play a game. Downey said when he went back to Sarah's place, Terrence and his buddy were outside. They exchanged keys and agreed to a meeting spot. But Downey said he lost track of Terrence, so he decided to keep driving east of the city to check out one of Terrence's old stash spots. He testified he later changed his mind and turned around and picked up A.B. from work at the daycare. Sarah and Talia's family said Downey's testimony was laughable. (laughs) Sorry to laugh, but the reality was what I call it Terrence and the other guy, because he really um, tried his best to point the finger on two individuals. One, he couldn't remember the name of. Two, Terrence, he didn't even have him as a contact in his phone, although this guy was going to sell him countless uh, kilos of uh, cocaine. Uh, You know, it, it made for a real good story. And, but that's what all it was. It was so disrespectful. I, it, it, he, had, he was callous. He was... To, for anyone to sit up there and lie the way he did is disgusting to me. The prosecution told the jury Downey's version of events was a lie and asked them to reject it. Prosecutor Carla McPhail said he made up his two friends. She said there was no Terrence. There was no unknown male. There was only Mr. Downey. McPhail said Downey hated Sarah and told jurors they should find Downey guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. The Crown alleged both killings were planned and deliberate and both Sarah and Talia were unlawfully confined and dominated before they were murdered. McPhail called the evidence overwhelming and called Downey's explanation absurd. You know, what I do remember, the Crown Prosecutor Carla McPhail, when she said to the judge, I think this was at her closing statement, this man sacrificed the life of a five-year-old child 
for his own self-preservation. And that is exactly what he did. He killed Talia to save himself from prosecution. No other reason. She was innocent. She was a child. After three and a half weeks of graphic evidence, jurors were tasked with determining Downey's guilt or innocence. It took them less than three hours to reach unanimous decisions in the case. There was cheering, hugging, and tears in the courtroom as the verdicts were read. Edward Downey was guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. Sarah and Talia's loved ones applauded the jury, relieved the trial was finally over. Outside of court, Sarah's mother called her daughter a hero and said she died trying to help her friend out of a bad situation. Now I can go home and bury Sarah and Talia's ashes and forever let them rest in peace. Our hope is that in time, and little by little, this powerful love we feel for the girls will gradually take up more and more space in our minds each and every day, that pictures and sounds of the happier times will settle on us and drive out the darkness that has become part of our daily lives for the most recent past. One by one, Loved ones of Sarah and Talia described the impact of their murders at a sentencing hearing for Edward Downey. They were just two beautiful people, and they should still be here to enjoy life together and with the rest of their family. It's just such a loss. I mean, it was my only daughter and my only granddaughter that I'll likely ever have family told me one of the things that haunts them the most is knowing how scared Talia must have been, witnessing her mother's death and then being kidnapped. I couldn't keep them safe. So I feel I failed her because I couldn't protect them from the evil in this world. And you can't help but sit and think, what if, you know? What if that day that Talia called me and said I had to come back and look at her tooth? What if we turned that car around and never went to Banff that night? Or if we had taken her with us? Or... There's always something, unfortunately or fortunately, that pops up. Maybe a a lone sock in the washer and dryer room, and it's hers, so... It, uh, it's pretty emotional. It's pretty raw. I don't wish this on anybody. First-degree murder comes with an automatic life sentence. But the judge still needed to determine how long Downey should stay in prison before being allowed to apply for parole. The judge had the option of handing down consecutive parole ineligibilities. That meant... Downey would either have to wait 25 years or 50 years for any chance at freedom. If it was set at 25 years, he would be 71. But if parole ineligibility was set at 50 years, he would be 96, meaning he would likely die in prison. Not that I wish anyone to die, but I wish... And my hopes are that none of us have to go to a parole hearing and see this individual ever again. On May 17, 2019, Justice Beth Hughes handed down a written sentencing decision. She noted, we don't know why Downey went to Sarah's house, knowing the animus he held for her. Perhaps it was to confront Sarah with respect to the termination of his relationship with A.B. Perhaps it was to ask Sarah to intercede with A.B. on his behalf. What the evidence did establish is that Downey bound and strangled Sarah. He killed Talia because she was there that morning, and he wanted to eliminate her as a witness. 
Hughes found Downey's flirtatious texts to Diana illustrate he had no remorse after killing Sarah along with a defenseless child. Hughes said, one can only conclude he is a callous and remorseless individual regardless of his in-court statement. The justice found Downey's moral blameworthiness and his degree of responsibility are at the highest level and sentenced him to consecutive parole ineligibilities. Edward Downey cannot even apply for parole for 50 years. But this court case is not over yet. Downey exercised his right to file an appeal of both the verdicts and the sentence. Down a path along the banks of the Bow River on the west side of Calgary, there's a peaceful place where you can hear the water flowing and birds chirping. From this spot, you can see a small sandbar across the river where Talia loved trying out the fishing rod her uncle Mikey bought her. This is where Sarah and Talia's loved ones go to remember. They sit on a bench that reads, in loving memory of Sarah and Talia. Your laughter will forever fill our hearts. Thank you for joining me and letting me share Sarah and Talia's story with you. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnston. Special thanks to Vildo Sturm and Craig Jaron for their editing assistance. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Next time on Crime Beat, I'll be answering some of the questions you've sent in for a special Q&A episode. After that, we'll be taking a short break to work on more cases to bring you for a second season of Crime Beat. Thank you for listening and for your ongoing support. I appreciate it so much. If you have a question about one of the episodes, about crime reporting in general, or questions about me, send them my way. You can send me a message on Twitter, at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook, Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I would love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at nancy.hickst. You can also email me at nancy.hickst at globalnews.ca. That's n-a-n-c-y dot h-i-x-t at globalnews.ca. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time. A gunman on the loose in a quiet coastal town. By morning, 22 people were dead. I'm Sarah Ritchie. I live in Halifax, and I'm a reporter for Global News. On my new podcast, 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre, we'll examine every hour of this tragedy to try and piece together what happened and what could have been done to prevent it. You can listen to 13 Hours Inside the Nova Scotia Massacre for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts.